Hello and welcome to the Future Work Life podcast. My name is Ollie Henderson and in a couple of weeks, series 12 of this podcast will be kicking off. In the meantime, after receiving some brilliant feedback from republishing the Daniel Pink episode in March, over the next couple of weeks, I'll be sharing 12 of my favourite episodes since I launched Future Work Life. And today, you'll hear my conversation with Linda Gratton from May 2022. So Linda, thank you very much for joining me today. It's great to speak to you. Um, I wanted to start with a very broad question related to your new book. Uh, I'm, I'm interested how well-prepared you think organizations are to redesign work? Well, you know, Ollie, if you'd asked me that question before the pandemic, I'd have said, not really. But of course, what the pandemic did was kick off the most astounding experiments. So even if you weren't really prepared for it, suddenly, you know, as I said in my Harvard Business Review article, doing hybrid right, Fujitsu, the most traditional Japanese company, moved everybody home 60,000 people home within one week. So even if they weren't ready, they certainly are now. Mm. Yes. And and do you think the skills required were skills which already existed within businesses, we just hadn't kind of activated them yet? Or do you think actually leadership and particularly HR have had to rebalance their efforts in terms of understanding what it takes to manage a much more diverse workforce, not just in terms of the makeup of the skill set and background, but actually where people are located and what time zones they're in. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I think it's very much led by employees. You know, we all learned how to be incredibly digitally sophisticated. We all learned what we're learning now that we're asking the question now, what's an office for? So I, I don't think it was specifically the HR department or leaders. I just think every one of us started working differently. And in doing that, we pushed organizations to behave differently. I mean, one of the things I, I, I have a column for MIT Sloan and the piece that I just wrote that came out today actually was about the inside and the outside. Now, the, the point I made is that, you know, individuals are looking inside and asking themselves, you know, what have I learned during this process? I've got new skills, I've got new habits, I've got new networks. So Mm. we're looking for social pioneers, you know, who do I know in my circle who's doing something exciting that I can follow? But at the same time, organizations and their leaders are looking outwards. They're asking themselves, oh my goodness, what are our competitors doing? You know, you could be in investment banking right now. And, you know, as I say in my book, Redesigning Work, a company like a Canadian investment company is saying, you can work anywhere you want for three months a year. Well, if I was in Goldman right now, I'd be saying, hang on, why don't we have that sort of a deal? So so organizations are really being pushed along by first movers. And my job as an academic at the London Business School is to make sure that they hear about all the exciting experiments that they're doing, because I would love work to change. Yeah. Well, I I like the use of the word design within that, because um, it is actually quite a creative job, I think, for for, for all of us to reconsider many aspects of the way that we work. And it starts, as you suggested, with ourselves you know what are the characteristics of a good work life and you know whether whether we want to spend time at home whether we want to spend time in the office but I just want to pick up on something you mentioned there about networks so I think there's one change that we've really noticed and this is particularly evident because we're not in the office all the time but I wonder how changes in the way we work have affected knowledge flows within organizations and why that matters you know why does that matter to networks and relationships we're building 
Well, you know, thank you so much, Ollie, for that question, because I do think that networks are really important. I've written about them in it pretty much in all my books, but I came back to it again in redesigning work. And here's why. That networks are so important to our sense of ourselves, our identity. They're so important to our productivity. Indeed, they're so important to our capacity to change. For example, you know, if I want to be better at what I do, um, it's really smart for me to spend time with people who are like me, you know, the, the peer group that I have. But that isn't going to help me do anything different. I mean, if I want to be be different and bring in new ideas and think of new ways of working, then I have to spend time with a much more diverse group. So, for example, I'm really interested in what's the office for? So I'm now spending a lot of time with architects, designers, and so on to get a sense of how do they see the world. So networks are very, very important, both to individuals in terms of our own productivity and our creativity and our sense of identity, but also to organizations because those knowledge flows are a crucial part of what makes a company successful. And what we learned quite early on in the pandemic, particularly as everything moved to you know, the virtual platform, is that we spent more time with people who are just like us, um, we call in sociologists call those strong ties. And we spent much less time with people who are different from us, who we don't know so well, what sociologists call weak ties. And that was a real worry, actually. And I think part of the adjustment process that we're going through at the moment is, you know, organizations think about getting people back to work to the office. Individuals think about, you know, what sort of work do I want? Then that, what's happening there is that people are really considering knowledge flows, you know, who do I need to spend time with? And if you're in the office, you know, I was talking to an investment banker last week and she said, you know, Linda, I commuted one and a half hours to get into Manhattan this morning. I'm just about later on to spend one and a half hours going back to Connecticut. And I've spent the whole time in Zoom meetings. You know, what, what mm. what's that about? Why did I bother? So, yeah. you know, we've also got, if you think that an office is a place where you bump into people and you have these, you know, serendipitous occasions, then we have to design offices differently because at the moment they're just being used as a place you do a Zoom meeting. Yeah. Well, and even when it's not just the Zoom meetings, I think, and this is because it's early days, I suppose, but what we're typically doing is arranging for the whole team to come in on the same day. But actually, you know, that's great to build connection between team members and build trust. But actually, if you think back to, I like Sandy Pentland's work on in social physics related to kind of how knowledge flows between different teams. And there was, you know, various experiments done when actually when the most innovative organizations would typically have a lot of those serendipitous interactions between, you know, somebody from the marketing team and the tech team. And it wouldn't always be focused on those same people. So I guess this is just one of the kinks that we're going to have to work out, yeah. you know, as we go forward, which is, you know, what is the best combination? Is it just to build team relationships or do we try to manufacture or encourage in some way that the, these the coordination between different teams as well. Yeah, well, Ollie, of course, the thing is, and, and this is something I've been saying quite a lot at the moment, is it's not either or, it's and, and. I mean, yeah. you need both. You need both an office and a home. You need both mm. um, st a strong, tight networks, but you also need loose, diverse networks. And we need, be be before, we, we didn't really have to design work. We just all showed up in the office and we got on with our work. But now we have to design work. And one of the design questions is inevitably going to be, how do we um, make sure that when we're in the office, we do all the things that we think an office is brilliant for, which is cooperation, uh, meeting people face to face, doing diverse, you know, 
work and so on and so forth. Mm. Where does the thinking around synchronous versus asynchronous communication come into it? Because again, I think we've just reacted really, really well, actually, in general to the idea that we can work remotely. And actually, I think it's been many people's first experience of asynchronous work, you know, by which I mean, you know, you don't have to be speaking to somebody or communicating in real time with somebody. But I guess the next stage is designing work, which actually best suited to that type of communication. I wonder if you could explain kind of how you thought yeah. about that and how you talk, yeah. what you talk about in the book. Well, thanks. I mean, one of the one of the decisions I made when I wrote Redesigning Work is to start with the job, not with the person. And so the question mm. I start by asking you, the reader or you, the listener, is, you know, where are you most productive? And, and I talk about four types of, you know, work typology of work. One is, you know, I'm most productive when I'm incredibly energized or I'm most productive when I'm very focused, you know, when I could like me, where I'm writing a book or I'm most uh, productive when I'm coordinating with other people or I'm most productive when I'm cooperating and each of the each of us of course has all of those elements but but for most jobs one or two of them is the most important so you know if like if you're an architect and you say for me cooperation is a huge part of my job then you want to design your work so that you get a chance to be with other people face to face in a synchronous way but of course you don't have to be face-to-face to be synchronous. You know, you and I are actually synchronous right now, but we're not face-to-face. And I think the real insight about the pandemic was that we could be virtually synchronous. Now, mm. I have to say, Ollie, you know, my view right now is we've completely gone over the top on that. We've, you know, endless Zoom meetings. And psychologists, I'm a psychologist myself, are saying this is terrible for the neural networks. You know, you're looking at yourself all the time. It's so peculiar. Your eyes aren't picking up on cues. So the, the, the eight hours of Zoom, synchronous Zoom, is a mistake. And, you know, I think one thing that, one thing that really excites me about what's happening with work right, right now, it's not even the future of work, it's here and now, mm. is that we're learning that really quickly. So, you know, for example, some of the companies that I'm advising are saying, um, we, we have to stop all this soon. You know, if, if, our most, if our most creative people are most productive when they're on their own, undisturbed, because they do focus work, we've got to provide boundaries to let them get on with three or four hours of undisturbed work. Yeah, I think there's also the, the sort of second order effects of these changes. So I was, I was chatting to somebody the other day who made a really brilliant point, which is within an asynchronous world, suddenly the power of writing increases significantly because you have to be able to communicate your point in a very different way to how you might do in this situation where we can chat to one another. And, we, and if there's perhaps any uh, misunderstanding, you can explain and you've got a chance to you know to, to clarify your point so I wonder just in the broader context um, how skills ch- are changing or at least the conversation around skills because I think it was probably a knowledge that we had a skill shortage in some areas even before COVID and like you know the sort of cliche is that it's you know it, COVID accelerated many of those existing trends but I wonder if you think about if it, new skills have emerged, such as the ability to write asynchronously, and what that means from an organisation's planning around learning development, what 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 are the what are the key areas that organisations need to focus on? Well, I think that's a really interesting question, Ollie. And you know, um, 
that the question of if it's asynchronous, then you have to communicate with each other through writing or, or you could send, send a video, I guess, or, you know, a PowerPoint or but but nevertheless, it's a different communication format than you and I talking to each other, which we're doing synchronized right now. Um, and I think that that's that is a new skill set. And it's not just about the writing itself. It's also about the flow of work. You know, Mm -hmm. if I look at the companies, I think are the most productive right now, you know, they're using a whole set of uh, technologies and programs to allow work to flow so that they're communicating with each other. They're not, um, that they're looking at, at, uh, they're visualizing information. They're using, um, you know, word clouds a lot. So that they're actually working in in a very creative way but 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 asynchronous and i and i absolutely agree with you that the sort of skills that you know designers and architects had to visualize information and to to show it are sort of skills that we need now and it's interesting for myself that now um you know when i work in an asynchronous way i personally for example use a lot of um pictures i i draw a lot of uh models I and lit systems and things, and that's how I communicate, I, as well as just writing writing stuff. Yeah, it's a good point, actually, because as I I finished making that point before, and then you picked up on something, which it doesn't have to be just writing, actually. And I think you know my writing's got better actually the last couple of years because of this type of communication. But there are other media as well. You know, for example, I think voice notes have become something which I've seen different companies using to be able to quickly share information so anyway only only to say that if for people who aren't necessarily as comfortable with writing you're completely right you know if you can draw I mean I happen to be one of the worst artists in the world so I wouldn't contemplate drawing so I think I might confuse things but you know you can record audio notes or videos and I think all of these as you suggested these are really new creative ways we think about um you know communicating within within yeah business. well because i'm i'm i love painting i'm a i'm a painter so for me you know over the weekend i was trying to build a model of how to describe what's happening in offices and yeah. actually I, I you know i had my ipad with me and my little pencil and i did a whole bunch and today one of my team who's better at actually making them than I is drawing it up but but that for me is a hugely important uh, source of cooperation you know I wrote a book called um the hundred year life and another one called the new long life and and the thing that and we talk about multi multi uh stage lives and we wrote we did one infographic on that which actually shows it as a model as a visual model and that is the most downloaded piece on my LinkedIn or Twitter yeah because people you know, explaining stuff using models and, and pictures and so on is, is a really important way of, mm. of, 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 of sharing ideas. I'm envious. I wish I could do that. I mean, I, so I also love a, I love a, a mental model. I like a framework to which can really. Mm, I love frameworks. Yeah. And I could, and I, and I suppose what I do is uh, rely upon circles and arrows, but uh, you know, <laughs> go much beyond that. And I uh, go, go beyond. I'm way own. beyond circles and arrows. <laughs> way beyond (laughs) (laughs) i need to i need need a collaborator like you who can actually illustrate it for me um so actually picking up on creativity then let's take that forward and and actually in relation to the two books you mentioned there now you i wonder this this is a multi-part question two stages so first of all you've talked about the fact we're moving from a three-stage life to a multi-stage life so i'm interested first of all to explore what you mean by that expression 
Oh, sure. Yeah. So so a three stage life is full time education, full time work, full time retirement. And it's a it's a single sequence that everybody goes in at the same age. You know, so if you know somebody's age, like, for example, if you're 65, you're likely to be retired. If you're 20 or 18, let's say you're likely to be in full time education. At least some people are 17. Um, a multi stage life has got a lot more stages to it. So it also says you could also add to that. Uh, going on sabbatical, um, you know, starting your own business, building a portfolio. And it's much more individualistic in the sense that when you explore your multi-stage life and I explore my multi-stage life, they're going to be different because you're diff- you and I are different people. So that brings a whole load of uh, ideas about personal agency, about how you then narrate your own life. It means that you're not so connected with people in your own age. Um, for example, I, I have my own business. I'm 67. I have my own business. And, and lots of 20-year-olds are starting their own business. So I'm more connected. You know, so if I look at the people I'm connected with at the moment, they're people in their early 30s who are building a business because that, that sort of fascinates me. So what you're then beginning to do is break down uh, age and age stereotypes. So for me, the multi-stage life is... One of the most interesting concepts that Andrew Scott and I came out with when we wrote those two books. And I think it's been a real eye opener for people just to think about their lives and realize it's much more self authored than perhaps they thought it was before. Yeah, I love that idea as well, actually. I think it helps reframe some of the decisions you're making. So I have been going through a career transition over the past couple of years. And I wonder whether now that isn't such a big deal because 20 years ago, pivoting your career from one profession to another was probably much more unusual. Whereas I think in the multi-stage life, it's inevitable that we're going to be doing many different things. And particularly when you consider sort of macro trends, you know, the fact technology is changing so much about the way we do business and we build relationships. So just returning to the second part of the question, which I didn't ask before, where does creativity come into this whole conversation because you know increasingly it seems to be a defining characteristic first of all of those businesses that have flourished during these difficult times the ability to be creative and innovative but also within with specific individuals you know that ability to be able to respond to unpredictable circumstances in a creative way seems I think to define people who have been successful and can navigate these periods successfully Mm. Yeah, a great question, Olin, and one to really think about. I mean, it seems to me that creativity um, has two sources, um, one of which is your relationship to yourself in the sense of how you um, bring information into yourself, uh, the means by which you do that. So, So in terms of work, style, that really means focus. You know, mm. so for you to be able to, think about, you know, to have create. So, so this weekend, I tried to bring together my thinkings about what an office for is for. I, I think that I, I had a creative time doing that. But that was four or five hours of me being undisturbed. That's why I did it on a Saturday afternoon, because that was an undisturbed time for me. And I just basically wrote down and drew diagrams on my own. So that was very much self-authored creativity. But I think as important is the creativity when you're with other people. So, you know, I personally, when I like, when I work and when I talk to other organizations about working, 
I think you need to separate out the two. I think that, and in fact, we know this from research, you need to help people spend time on their own thinking about what they believe to be important before you then go into a group where you're brainstorming it. So I'm in the brainstorm stage of that now. Mm. So I've already started talking to people. So it's got both an inner time when you need to be focused, but also a time when you want to be with other people and talk about stuff and be cooperative. And and if you have a chance of being face-to-face, then that's great. I don't think it's just face-to-face. I I wrote um, a really nice, I think, Harvard Business Review article that went into the in on on March with uh, Diana Gerson, who had just stepped down as the CHRO of IBM, and it was a very I think it was a creative process, uh, and the article I think was a creative outcome. But Dan and I have never met each other. Yeah, you know we did all of it on Zoom. Now we are actually going to meet each other next month in my house in France, but we actually hadn't. She lives in California. We'd never met, so. You know, I, I, I'm I'm getting a little bit cautious of face-to-face. You know, face-to-face is absolutely wonderful, but it's not always possible. You know, Diane and I couldn't be face-to-face. She was in California in lockdown and I was in London in lockdown. And I think we, we also need to realise that, you know, you can be quite creative, you know, face-to-face or even in, in the metaverse. You know, I was talking to people from Accenture who are doing a lot of work now, where some of their creative work is is going on in the metaverse. Well, again, you know that's new or gaming. So we have to be we have to be creative about being creative. Mm. Yeah, I think this is where reimagining work and redesigning work it's so fundamental, isn't it? And this is, I think, breaking. And I think do think the last couple of years has helped shift our mindset on this. But there's so much further to go, and I think we're yeah. still particularly within some and look it's a legacy from having worked in offices for you know most of our careers people have done that for 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 20 years 30 years you know it's hard not to it's hard it's hard to let go of the idea that there's some real profound benefits to being together in person and I think there are benefits to being together in person but it doesn't necessarily restrict us from creating new relationships build you know being creative and actually and I think as we've demonstrated and to be honest my podcast illustrative of this which is I've not met I've I've done about 80 podcasts in and I've done all of them remotely and I've probably only met a handful of the people or maybe less and yet I consider this to be a creative process and it's giving me opportunity to then you know explore new ideas and then write about them here's the difference Ollie and this is where I would say um let's not forget about face-to-face, which doesn't have to be an office. It could be in a coffee shop. But if mm. you then, if we then met next week, let's say, and had coffee face-to-face, either in my office at London Business School or my HSM office in, or, or here or in, in, you know, the Primrose Hill coffee shop, we actually would, it would change the nature of our relationship. Mm. That, that's the truth of it yeah. because we would see each other. I would, we would, we would have a lot more, we would have a wider social conversation. You know, I'd be asking you about, you know, yourself, who you, you'd, I'd, so, so I think that, I guess guess I'm making a case for and, and that, Mm. that actually, I think we can do a huge amount asynchronous. I think we can do a huge amount synchronous and, you know, face to face as you and I are now. 
But we can also do quite a lot face-to-face in a relaxed social situation. And I think that's really where I'm coming at. I'm actually thinking a lot about this at the moment. And where I'm coming out currently is, you know, the office needs to be a place which is social, really, where you can have coffee with people, where you can bump into people. If it's just a place that you go into and sit in, in your own office and do Zooms, it isn't, it's not worth being there. What do you think about frequency changing or at least experimenting with the, the frequency with which we meet in person? So, you know, the the easiest solution in our minds would be how many days per week do we go to the office? But more businesses now are thinking about whether actually the cadence is extended. So perhaps we just do a monthly team meetup or, and this is, true of a lot of those companies that worked fully in a fully distributed way beforehand often tech businesses um, but where they'd meet once a quarter for a longer period you know they might do any a trip away for three days and the, the point of this is that the or the idea would be you still have the opportunities to build trust between people have those social conversations kind of break down some of the kind of regimented conversation you might have to do with business every day but like, i wonder whether there's pros and cons to those approaches or whether actually we can we could just say well actually we'll operate fully remote but once a quarter we get together what are the limitations of that approach do you think well i think you know one of the points i make in redesigning work is there's you're just going to see massive varieties so i talk about a company uh in the us actually which was completely virtual before lockdown it was made up of mostly people who had come out of mckinsey and boston consulting group it's entirely virtual they haven't met each other uh, and it works perfectly well um although it's not grown as fast as Accenture or Deloitte or any of the other companies that use a lot of office space. So I think you're going to see a lot of variety. And honestly, I don't think there's a right answer. A journalist very early on said to me, Linda, what are the best practices? And I said to him, I don't think there are any. And that actually was what started me off writing the book, because he said, well, if there aren't any best practices, what is there? And I said, well, there's a process that you go through. So the best practice is the process. And the process is saying, you know, and I talk about it in the book, you know, understanding jobs and people and networks, imagining being as imaginative as you can be, checking out that it's it's fair and it's future proof, and then actually trying to get the stuff to stick, you know, by in- engaging in with leaders, managers and employees. So it's the process. So, you know, I, it, you know, there will be organizations and there will be jobs where you say, you know what, we can work at home the whole time and just meet once a month. And th- there are those jobs. There'll be other jobs where you say, we actually have to be together all the time. And I think that the role of an executive now is to know what to do best for both the job and for people. And I think if you just simply say, as an executive, let's just go back to how we were, that for me is not the right answer. You know, for Mm -hmm. me, the right answer is, I've thought about this, we've done some experimentation, and this is where we've come with it. And then I think you'll see a massive variety, which will be great, because variety gives individuals choices. If you want to be in the office all the time, guess what, there'll be a company that allows you to do that. If you want to work from home all the time, there's probably going to be a company for you as well. Exactly. Imagination, again, is is the key. And, and on that topic of imagination, so the um, there, there is a certain group of people who say, well, actually, if we work in a fully remote fashion, then what you're opening yourself up to and, and you being the the worker, 
then you know your job could just as easily be done by someone on the other side of the world or eventually if your job can be automated a machine can do it so it changes the nature of jobs Uh, that imagination piece um i'm interested in how you think about what the kind of uniquely human skills are that we should be trying to nurture both within organizations but actually i'm thinking from our personal point of view as well you know how should we be thinking about trying bringing our uniquely human characteristics to bear in the future workplace and are those skills that companies should be taking responsibility to develop that's a big question but it's got three parts um i'll knock the first one uh, on the head immediately yes if you're fully remote then Next year, especially if we have inflation, uh, your company will ask, why are we doing it here? Or they'll ask, now that you're living 20 miles outside of London, why are you still getting a London waiting? So mm-hmm. those are those questions will be asked. So no question about that. I'm not saying there's a right or wrong answer, but it's yeah. these inevitably uh, raise those questions. The second point about about humans which is an area that I write a lot about. You know, my interest, one of my interests is in the impact of technology uh, on work and on what humans do. So humans do think two things that machines don't. Uh, one is they show high levels of empathy and they listen. Of course, a machine can listen to you, but it doesn't empathize with you. You know, Alex, you know, when you speak to a machine, it doesn't understand you. It's not empathizing with you. And the second thing that humans can do is they can be creative and uh, bring in new ideas and make new connections. But the the point here is that both empathy and creativity need what we psychologists call a rested brain. So if you're very stressed or you're working too hard and your brain isn't rested, then you don't empathize and, you, and you're not creative. You, in, in, in effect, become a machine. So part of the conversation that I'm having with executives in companies at the moment is to say, you know, when you employ humans, you want them to be as human as possible. And to do that, you have to be sure that their work doesn't really stress them. Because once humans are stressed, they start behaving like machines. You mentioned earlier on about the idea of personal agency becoming more common or prevalent in the future. Why is that? Why do you use that phrase again in in relation to how we might design our careers and work in the future? Well, in a traditional um, working life where, you know, it's full-time work, sorry, full-time education, full-time work, full-time retirement, you didn't need personal agency. All you did was to look across at your age cohort and find out what everybody else was doing and follow them. And that actually made for an easier life in some ways, to be honest. But now that's really... A, not available to you, and B, I don't think it's the way to go. So you have to author your own life. You have to decide. And to do that, you have to be somebody who's capable of making choices. And that's where I use the word personal agency. So personal agency refers to how you feel about your impact on the world. Do you feel, so so people with personal agency say, I feel as if I've got some control over my life. Uh, somebody with low personal agency would say circumstances are always buffering me around. And I think that the more we're able to be positive, we haven't spoken about that yet, but I think this is a hugely important human trait as well, to be positive and to have a sense of control, i.e. personal agency, 
the more likely you are to be able to, you know, build the life that you want. Well, let's talk about positivity. I think if you, uh, in in the current workplace, if you have the right skills, perhaps if you're, for example, talk about technology, someone who understands machine learning and understands data science, you're probably going to be pretty well set to, to be able to do well financially at the moment. But what about those people who perhaps haven't got skills which are massively in demand and can see a recession on the horizon? I mean, it would be difficult in that context to, to remain positive. So how much can we pull on that positivity and what influence can that have on our careers? Well, we know that let, let's use I'm going to I'm going to switch from positive to optimism. Let's let's use the word optimism. That might be an easier word for us to move along with. So by optimism, I, I mean that in general, you see the opportunities that are available to you and you don't get dragged down by the challenges. And I don't mean by that that you are you know, uh, 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 unable to, to imagine the bad parts. But, but what we know is that people who are optimistic tend to live better lives. They live longer uh, than pessimists. They are more able to make friends. They're more able to um, navigate work. And so I do think, and it, by the way, it is a personality trait. So you know, I was born extremely optimistic, which in fact, in some ways is extremely annoying and it annoys me and also my readers on occasion. You'll see some of my reviews, reviews say, for goodness sake, Linda, you know. Um, <laughs> but but I'm, I sort of stick with it, actually, because one of, particularly about the future of work, one of the things that I say to, to, to people who say, why aren't you more pessimistic, is, is I say it's really easy to be pe- pessimistic about the future of work. I think it's a much more difficult cognitive, uh, you know, a cognitive exercise to be positive. And so I, I think that the more that you can engage with your life, wherever you find your life, and, and I agree with you that if you have incredible machine learning skills at the moment, you've, you know, you're made for the next couple of years. But but whatever it is, you if you can approach every day in a positive way, I think that that's going to be a big help. Hmm. So if we look 10 years into the future, I know it's, it's almost impossible to, to predict, but um, you know, you've, you've written extensively about this. So I'm interested in whether you see a world of work where people are more independent. So there's one trend which has definitely accelerated in the past couple of years certainly if you look at the the numbers for for example of new businesses set up in particularly in the states but also in the uk the numbers have shot up over the past couple of years and i partly i think it's probably probably pragmatic you know perhaps some of those people have had to you know set up side gigs or you know get something something going just to be make sure that they can um economically you know see this see this challenging situation out but i do think also there's a general decoupling of work from employment as a trend do you see that organizations will have to change and again i know this is a big question but i wonder how you think about that change in relationship as us as individuals and employment with companies and whether we think that dynamic is going to change Hmm. well i think you know i think there's two there's two big trends which i'm watching really carefully at the moment well there's three actually but i'll add one which is something will probably won't happen, but I keep an eye on. The first is talent ecosystems, which is to say, 
you know, what is the means by which you connect yourself to an organization? And there's no doubt at all that ecosystems are becoming much more complex, by which I mean, you know, you can you can work for an organization as a freelancer. You can work, you know, because you've got a small business that they're that they're related to that you partner with. Uh, you can work as a full time person. You can do job share. Um, and and in fact, one of the pieces of work I'm doing at the moment really shows what those ecosystems of talents are. So no question, there's a great deal more variety there. The second, of course, is technology. And I think the metaverse is very interesting. Um, and I watch that really carefully. And I'm I, I, I working closely with companies that are experimenting with that. And then the third is something I've been going on about for ages and I always get wrong, which is the role of community and neighborhood, um, mm. which is to say, could we reorientate our, ourselves so that we're more, so the place that we find exciting is our place of home rather than necessarily our place of work. So those are the three three trends that I'm currently um, researching and talking to people about. That last point is really interesting, isn't it? Because we probably retreated in retreating to our homes. I, certainly, this is my experience. I live in North London and there are several new shared office spaces which have opened up locally, which would never have opened up two years ago. And and I'm not to say it's not to say I don't know how busy they are, frankly. But I think we've almost sort of seen a dispersion of people as we've moved to our homes. But we're now thinking, well, actually, I wouldn't mind not working in my spare yeah. room, but actually, I wouldn't mind somewhere to go. But are staying a bit closer to their communities. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think that's a good thing. Um, it's interesting. I mentioned earlier that uh, I was I've written about a company that's entirely virtual. When I talked to Christy Johnson, who runs it, I said, well, are people less connected? And she said, no, no, not at all. They're even more connected, but they're connected to their neighborhoods. They do Mm. community work. They see their neighbors. They buy locally. And I think that that's one thing we learned during COVID, and it would be a shame if we lost that. I I say this in every book. I wrote a book called The Shift, which looks at all the shifts that are changing our world. And one of them was moving back to communities. And I didn't get it right, but I I keep... (laughs) I keep my my fingers crossed on that one. You might have got it right. You just you got it right a bit too early. (laughs) (laughs) So last question. Um, I'm I'm fascinated by your own experience. So you described earlier on. So you talked about yourself as an academic. You're clearly an author, but you're also a business owner. How do you see that relationship? And is it something which has emerged slowly over time? I mean, do you embrace that idea that it's essentially a kind of portfolio career of sorts, rather than having that one fixed job and you know would what does the future hold do you see yourself focusing on one more area more than the other or do they are they complementary in the way that they work well mine mine are complementary in the sense that everything I do and I have three sources of income um I have my I'm a professor at the London Business School I'm I I'm the founder of HSM advisory which was a company that that looks at the future of work and I'm also a corporate speaker by the way on the future of work Mm. Um, but all of them at the center have my research and and I write books and all but all of that has at the center of it um, my real passion about the future of work Um, and I think what that's done is it's just built a a lot of resilience for me Um, not just economically although it has done that but it's more importantly it's 
it's provided me with opportunities to dip into different things as I feel like it. So, you know, I've just, I wrote the book that redesigning work. I, I, I wrote it faster than ever, any book I've ever written. Uh, Penguin um, published it faster than any book they've ever published. Uh, and we did that because we wanted it out last week, which it was. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not out till May the 3rd in the US, but it came out last week in the U because we just want, I knew that right now people wanted to talk about the redesign of work. So I really focused on that, but I've actually st stepped back now and I'm in a, a reflective researching period of my life and this could go on for you know months. So I think it just gives you a lot of resilience. I didn't do it particularly deliberately. I I'm, I am I have quite a lot of energy and I, I find just doing one thing too boring, really. I, I like a lot mm -hmm. of variety. I also travel a great deal, by the way, which is the next, the other thing I do. And I've got loads of children. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, look, uh, pleasure to speak to you this morning. Thanks so much. I'll, I'll put a link to your book and your website in the show great. notes, but it's really nice Thank to speak you. to you. Linda. Thanks, Ollie. Lovely to speak with you, Ollie.